0: I invite you to turn with me again to Psalm 45 this evening. Psalm 45 as has been read and as has been sung multiple times yet this evening and now to study Psalm 45. For all of human history, people have written their love for one another in poems, in songs and in letters And in fact, some of those poems and songs and letters have become masterpieces of literary history. But for mere mortals like you and me, we have to resort to the roses are red, violets are blue mantra. We're familiar with that roses are red, violets are blue, sugar is sweet, and so are you. Or roses are red, violets are blue. Love never crossed my mind until I met you, right? We know how this goes. Recently, my wife wrote to me, roses are red, violets are blue. The dog is my favorite, but you're okay too. <laughs> no, that's not true. She didn't write that. Uh, I did come across a website recently that is a love poem generator, and like the, the old Mad Libs template where you fill in the blanks, it will produce a love poem for you. And, uh, but then, better than that, is the new artificial intelligence, maybe Chat GPT you're familiar with, where you can simply ask it to, to write whatever you, you'd want and it would write it for you. I remember back in the day when I first fell in love with Kim, I wrote a song for her on my guitar. And she was visiting my family in upstate New York where we lived on the south shore of Lake Ontario. And uh, there on the rocky beach I played and I sang to her. And it was very romantic. And then of course I've reported to you how that I wrote a song on the piano uh, for Kim. And I played and sang at our wedding and at the unannounced but appointed time in the wedding ceremony, I walked Kim off the platform to the grand piano where I there played. My friend was on his guitar, and I sang, and it was pretty classy, if I do say so myself. We have that on VHS, if anybody would ever like to to see that, right? But Psalm 45 is a love song. And uh, according to the superscription there, if you have it open before you, it's it's a love song written as if it were commissioned for a royal wedding ceremony. And it was then given to the chief musician, is how my new King James reads, or the choir master, if you have the ESV. It was then distributed for public use. It was set to a tune in the the Hebrew, Shoshanim, in the English, The Lilies. Perhaps you see there in the superscription. It's the same tune that's assigned to Psalm 60, Psalm 69, Psalm 80. Obviously, we don't know what that tune sounded like. Perhaps something like one of the songs that we sang this evening. But finally then, Psalm 45 is a Hebrew mass skill, or in English, a contemplation. Meaning that this love song was intended for public instruction of God's people and this love song tells of the majesty of the bridegroom and the beauty of the bride. Let me pause for prayer and then we'll, we'll look at the scripture together. God in heaven, thank you for the, the great privilege it is to gather together in assembly uh, to worship you, to be instructed from the scripture. Lord, without threats, without fear, Lord, that we might worship you as we feel compelled by the scripture. And Lord, now as we study this ancient love song, this Hebrew poem, I pray that you would give us insight and understanding from your spirit for we're thankful for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Psalm 45 begins with a point of introduction in verse number 1, Psalm 45 verse 1. My heart is overflowing with a good theme. I recite my composition concerning the king. My tongue is the pen of a ready writer. The author of this psalm is stirred with emotion. My heart is overflowing. He's ready to to write this composition or this address because the theme is good. Now, there are times when you sit down to write a letter or a poem, or a song, or a sermon and you suffer that writer's block. You're at a loss for words. There are other times when you're motivated in a special way because the subject matter is so meaningful to you that the words just flow. And that's what's happening here. In this case, the theme is good. And the author is ready to write because the theme is concerning the king is my new King James. Or addressing the king, the New American Standard and the ESV there in verse number one. So we need to identify the king in Psalm 45. Some Bible scholars have suggested that the king is Solomon. And there are a few reasons to believe this is Solomon. Solomon was famous for his marriages. 700 wives he had, 1 Kings 11 verse 3. 1 Kings 3 and 1 Kings 9 then tell us that one of Solomon's wives was an Egyptian princess, and this psalm is clearly describing a royal wedding with numerous references to the king and the queen and princesses and palaces. So perhaps the king in Psalm 45 is Solomon. Solomon was also famous for his gold. Notice the references to gold in verse number 9 and verse 13. Nobody had gold like Solomon. Scholars believe that Solomon would have amassed nearly 1,000 tons of gold. You can read about it in 1 Kings 9 and 10. Solomon had the same amount of gold as is currently being held by the country of Switzerland. At $2,000 per ounce, you can do the math on that, uh, Solomon was famous for his gold. And then Solomon was also known for his association with the city of Tyre. Verse number 12, if you look there, cites the city of Tyre. Tyre was the place where Solomon sourced so many of the building materials for his building programs and of course the, the temple as well. 1 Kings 5-7, 1 Kings chapter 9. And so the king in Psalm 45 could be Solomon. However, on the other hand, There are a few great arguments for why this psalm is not about Solomon. First argument is that Solomon was not a warrior as described in verses 3, 4, and 5. Solomon was not a a warrior. His father David was a warrior but not Solomon. A second argument it's improbable that the author would address Solomon as God in verse number 6. You see in verse number 6. A third argument would be that if if this love song were commissioned for the royal wedding of Solomon for one of his hundreds of wives or perhaps the one princess that he married, why would this then be given to the chief musician to be used in the corporate worship of God? So therefore I submit to you this evening that the king that is cited in Psalm 45 is the king who is greater than Solomon In fact, that's what Jesus claimed in Matthew 12, verse 42. Jesus identified himself as one greater than Solomon. And to satisfy then all other speculation, in the New Testament, Hebrews 1, verses 8 and 9, references this very psalm and attributes it to King Jesus. And so understand that this is a messianic psalm. It's a love song about Jesus Christ and his bride, the church. In fact, if you have the New King James or the New American Standard, you will find that the word king is capitalized in your English Bibles. Also, You'll find other titles like in verse number three, Mighty One is capitalized as a reference to Christ. And then the pronouns, you or your, are capitalized throughout the psalm as an interpretive indication that the reference is to Jesus. One of the reasons that I prefer the New King James and the New American Standard. It's so helpful in capitalizing those pronouns so that we might understand that it's a reference to to deity. But the songwriter has taken up his pen as a ready writer, In verse number one, and he begins with number one in your notes an address to the groom. An address to the groom, the bridegroom. And you'll notice the first word in verse number two is you. It is you. Capital Y. It is you. You are fairer than the sons of men, the author addressing the king or who I would would call, letter A, the Magnificent Messiah. The Magnificent Messiah. Verse number two, you are fairer than the sons of men. Grace is poured upon your lips, therefore God has blessed you forever. In what ways is this king, the Magnificent Messiah, um, magnificent? First, number one, in how he looks. Verse 2 says, you are fairer than the sons of men. The ESV reads, the most handsome of the sons of men. Okay? But what about Jesus? Was he in fact fairer? Was he in fact more handsome? Isaiah 53.2 says that Jesus would have no form nor comeliness, no beauty that we should desire him. That is, there was nothing attractive about Jesus. In fact, Isaiah also says that upon his crucifixion, Jesus, that his visage was marred more than any man and his form more than the sons of men, Isaiah 52, 14. In what ways does Jesus look good? Well, don't think of Jesus' first coming. Don't think of his incarnation. Think of his second coming Isaiah 33 verse 17 says that someday our eyes will see the king in his beauty. And someday we will see him as he is. And so here prophetically the psalmist is I think pointing us to the risen, resurrected, glorified Lord Jesus Christ, the magnificent Messiah. But not only how he looks, number two, what he says. What he says there in verse number two, grace is poured upon your Lips, that was the report of the people who heard Jesus speak. The people remarked that Jesus taught them as one having authority, not as the scribes. In John 7, the soldier said, no one ever spoke this way, the the way that this man does. Peter said to Jesus, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. So the magnificent Messiah spoke in a way that no one has ever spoken. And then, of course, at the end of verse number two, God's blessing is on this one forever. The address to the groom as the magnificent Messiah. Verse number three, gird your sword upon your thigh, O mighty one, with your glory and your majesty. And again, my English Bible indicates deity and the capitalization of these pronouns and the capitalization of the tit- title, Almighty One. With majesty your glory and your majesty and in majesty ride prosperously because of truth, humility, and righteousness and your right hand shall teach you awesome things. Your arrows are sharp in the heart of the king's enemies. The peoples fall under you. The address to the groom first as the magnificent Messiah, secondly as the conquering king. Now, we understand that while the Hebrew people were looking for a conquering king at Jesus' first advent, that Jesus came, in fact, as a suffering servant. And there was no military conquest that occurred when Jesus first came to earth. At his triumphal entry into Jerusalem, the people hailed him by saying, Hosanna, blessed be the one who comes in the name of the Lord. And they waved palm branches as a gesture of victory. But then what happened? Just a few days later they they cried crucify him. And it appeared that Jesus suffered defeats with the signage over the cross as a point of mockery, king of the Jews. However, Revelation 19 tells us that at Jesus' second coming he will return as a conquering king. In fact, let's go there. Revelation chapter 19 Revelation 19 just quickly turn with me there I'd like to read verses 11 through 21. This is a familiar passage but I think it highlights for us the imagery of the conquering king Revelation 19 beginning in verse number 11. This is John the revelator reporting now I saw heaven opened Revelation 19 verse 11. And behold a white horse and he who sat on him was called Faithful and True and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes were like a flame of fire and on his head were many crowns. He had a name written that no one knew except himself. He was clothed with a robe, dipped in blood and his name is called the Word of God. Is there any question about who John is, is witnessing here? And the armies of heaven clothed in fine linen white and clean followed him on white horses. Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword that with it he should strike the nations and he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the wine presses of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God and he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun and he cried with a loud voice saying to all the birds that fly in the midst of the heaven come and gather together for the supper of the great God that you may eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and of those who sit on them, the flesh of all people free and slave both small and great. And I saw the beasts, the, king of the, the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. Then the beast was captured and with him the false prophet who worked signs in his presence by which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. Those two were cast alive into the lake of fire burning with brimstone and the rest were killed with the sword which proceeded from the mouth of him who sat on the horse and all the birds were filled with flesh. Folks, whatever happens in the meantime, Whatever current events that we witness on the news in our country or around the world, we know how the story ends. Jesus conquers his enemies. Back to Psalm 45. Psalm 45. The address to the groom, it continues now in verses 6 and 7. And, and this author, this ready writer who's enthused by the theme of of this poem and this song. He addresses the, the groom as the magnificent Messiah, the conquering king. Now verse number six. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. You love righteousness and hate wickedness. How about letter C? The righteous ruler. The righteous ruler. Folks, I don't think there can be any question about the identity of the groom in this case or the king in this case, the the Messiah. This settles it once for all because the one here is addressed as deity in verse number six. He's the one who reigns forever. Remember when the angel appeared to Mary, he said, behold, you will conceive in your womb and you will bring forth a son and shall call his name Jesus. He will be great, will be called the son of the highest And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he shall reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. And of course, as we read Psalm 45 and we question, well, perhaps this was some other human earthly king, Hebrews 1, verses 8 and 9, we won't take the time to turn there again, attributes these very verses to Jesus, the magnificent Messiah the conquering king, the righteous ruler. But beyond just the identity of, of, the, of the groom's reign it is that quality of the groom's reign, and it is one of righteousness. And folks, like never before, um, our world is in need of righteous rulers. Would you agree? And it is disheartening, again, to look at the headlines and to see the injustice that has permeated our country and our culture. There's always been wickedness. We we know that. But we have leaned on and trusted the system, the, the justice system, to prosecute and to punish wickedness. But that isn't happening so much anymore. And oh how humanity needs this Righteous ruler, not just one who will rule forever and ever, but who will do so in righteousness. Verses 7 through 9 describes the preparations for this wedding. In verse 7, as your eyes are scanning the, the psalm, the oil is it's not the, the oil of anointing the king, but the gladness and, and joy of, of the king's assignment. Remember that Jesus endured the cross because of the joy that was set before him. Verse number eight, you see the fragrances there. Verse eight, it speaks of ivory palaces, not just ivory decor or ivory accents, but palaces. Jesus left the palaces of heaven above to come into this world of woe. Verse number nine, there also there are princesses who accompany the bride. We might think of them as bridesmaids, in verse 14, they're, they're called virgin companions. The bride approaches. And now verses 10 through 15 give us number two in your notes, the address to the bride. There's an address to the groom. There's an address to the bride. And just as we need to identify the king, we need to identify the bride. If the king in Psalm 45 is King Jesus, then the bride in Psalm 45 has to be his, his church according to Ephesians 5 verses 22 to 33 and, and we're familiar with that passage in which the apostle Paul describes the marriage union but says this is a mystery I speak concerning Jesus Christ and his church and so the address to the bride begins with letter A uh, he says forget the past letter A forget the past look at verse number 10 listen O daughter Consider and incline your ear. Forget your own people also and your father's house. Forget the past as a bride. It reminds me of God's call to Abraham in in Genesis 12. Get out of your country, from your family, from your father's house, to a land I will show you. Forget the past, leave it behind. This uh, reminds me also of God's call to the New Testament Christian in Luke 14. Jesus said, if anyone comes to me does not hate his father and mother, wife and children, brothers, sisters, yes, and his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be, cannot be my disciple. And then, of course, this reminds me of that marriage principle of leaving and cleaving. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And there's a, a cleaving principle there. The Apostle Paul says this one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind, I press forward. And, and so here the bride, the address to the bride is, is, you need to forget the past because you're to be wed to the king. The back of your notes, I've, I've copied what one man has written by way of application. He says it's painful to leave behind mother and father, son and daughter, we are attached to the beauties and friendships of this world. Forget them all. The king will more than make up for all. Someday you will look back upon the parting with temporal things and think your hesitation silly and ill-founded. When you sit in the ivory palace, arrayed in the gold of Ophir, at the right hand of the eternal king, you will wonder what you saw in those formal former things. You will never regret it, carry through with your discerning choice. The king must be your one and only love henceforth. Leave and cleave. Make the break. Turn to the king. Forget the past letter A. Verse number 11 though, there's a a second point of address to the bride. So the king will greatly desire your beauty because he is your Lord. Worship him. So the king will greatly desire your beauty. Because he is your Lord, worship him. Letter B, fall before your Lord. Fall before your Lord. Now, we're, we're mixing some of the imagery here at this point and that of the marriage union and that of creation's worship of her creator. It, in what way is the bride at the end of verse 11 to worship him? think the the ESV and the NAS render it, bow down to him. And once again, I think that this indicates that the bridegroom is the king of kings, someone greater than Solomon. We would certainly understand that a wife should honor her husband or submit, submit to him as is taught in Ephesians 5. However, this states the matter in a greater way. Bow down to him. Or Worship him. And wives, if you worship the ground in which your husband walks, then you are a, a good wife. But, but in what way do you worship? We don't worship our, our, our human mates, but in this way we worship the, the king. And I, I think this expresses it in this language because it's speaking of Jesus. Someday every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And so the bride is to fall before her Lord, the King of kings, the Lord of lords. Verse number 13, the royal daughter is all glorious within the palace. Her clothing is woven with gold. She shall be brought to the king in robes of many colors. The virgins, her companions who follow her, shall be brought to you. With gladness and rejoicing, they shall be brought. They shall enter the king's palace. I would offer you let her see. Focus on the future. Focus on the future. And, and verses 13 through 15 really give us this impression the picture of a procession from the palace of the royal bride in verse 13 to the palace of the king in verse number 15. And, and the pro- procession from one residence to another residence was the practice of ancient wedding ceremonies when a bride would make her way from her home to the place of the groom, the place that the groom had prepared for her. And the bride would be dressed in the finest attire and without spot or without wrinkle as is described of the church in Ephesians 5. And it was a time of the greatest celebration and and the fulfillment of all of the preparation for the consummation when the bride and the groom would, if you'll allow, live happily ever after. And so you, you focus on the future because of the union that is forged with that great king. There's the address to the groom, there's the address to the bride, and then then I believe the author concludes with this benediction here now in verses 16 and 17. And again, there's a change in the pronouns now in verses 16 and 17. You and your, namely they're masculine, Meaning the author is turning his attention back to the king once again. And, and if you're carrying the, the English New King James or New American standard, you find these pronouns again, verses 16 and 17, to be capitalized as a reference to King Jesus. Whereas the, the pronouns of verses 10 to 15 were, were lowercase in reference to the bride. But look at verse 16. Instead of your fathers shall be your sons whom you shall make princes in all the earth. I will make your name to be remembered in all generations. Therefore the people shall praise you. This is the king forever and ever. What's being said here? This is a little bit cryptic. And so what I often do when I struggle to understand something, I turn to our friend Warren Weersby. <laughs> and there in the back of your notes, here's how he offers this paraphrase of verses 16 and 17, this benediction. No matter how great your ancestors were, your descendants will be even greater. They will be princes in all the earth, not just government officers in the kingdom. You will reign forever and ever and your name will never be forgotten. The people will praise you forever. And, and of course appointment, uh, a reference to the, the king um, of, of kings. And so, folks, if I use my sanctified imagination, I, I can picture the author now looking over this love song that he's written as he's been commissioned for a royal wedding. And as he looks over this, I can I can imagine him looking at what he had written, saying, Yes, this is it. Send this to the chief musician. Let this be said, let this be sung, perhaps to the tune of the lilies or any other tune as we, as we made effort this evening to, to sing in celebration of the majesty of the bridegroom and the beauty of the bride. We all love a good wedding. We all love the, the romance, the magic, the celebration of that union. We appreciate the picture of Jesus Christ in his church but know that we are the bride. And by God's grace, we will be wed to Jesus Christ, the groom. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for the teaching of this text this evening. Lord, thank you for, um, for your unconditional love for us. Thank you for choosing us and making us your bride. Thank you for sanctifying us and preparing us for that glorious day when we will around that table feast at the marriage supper of the Lamb, would I pray that you'd help us to not look back but look forward in great anticipation. May we worship the King of kings and the Lord of lords in whose name I pray, amen.